had, I mean, really it's uh, a pleasure, real pleasure, because we are going to have with us uh, Arnaud uh, de Servigny, who has a really <laughs> long, long experience in the field that many of us are, uh, we would like, I mean, to, to adventure it. And the endeavor that we are going to, to start in the financial sector uh, would be really even richer and with more insight if we have, I mean, some information and some experiences from the people who have been in this field and have gone through really the troubles, the some, uh, some complicated, I mean, moments. And this is why we wanted really to, uh, to have, I mean, the experiences of uh, Arnaud. Arnaud, I, uh, I owe you an apology. You know, when I was sharing the, uh, the, the news that you're going to, to attend and you had accepted, I mean, to join us, I uh, presented you as Arnaud uh, Versini. Actually, Mr. Versini is my neighbor at, at home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Arnaud. I wanted I mean, to, to present you, but uh, there was already your bio in the, uh, in the news that we, we shared. But I wanted just, I mean, to tell you, just uh, give you, I mean, a hint about the institution that Arnaud has been already, has went, I mean, to, to the thing. So, uh, well, from which one I start? Every single bank, I mean, that really is uh, weighing in the uh, landscape of financial world, uh, Arnaud has been there. So, institutions. So, I start with BNP Paribas, then we go to Barclays, then we are talking about Deutsche Bank, uh, to the, and some, I mean, for example, the, the, uh, the, the rating agencies, which is the most important, Standard & Poor's, so, uh, and Arno also, also, he has, I mean, the, he doesn't only, I mean, uh, doing, I mean, business, he's not only, I mean, uh, making money for himself and uh, for his, uh, his uh, institutions, but also, Arno is also sharing his experience to, I mean, to the students. So he is adjunct uh, professor at Imperial College, College in London. Uh, do you still, I mean, teaching there, Arno? Yes, I am, yes, I am. Awesome, yes, I am. awesome. So I suppose, I mean, so some, uh, some people who are coming, I mean, along to ask you for, for your next uh, courses or whatever. Okay, so, uh, but now uh, Arnaud is the CEO of Queensfield AI Technologies. And what is we are going to really to, to, to listen is about how navigate through crisis and a little, I mean, kind of really the, the kind of uh, insight about the financial industry during the troubles time. Thank you so much, Arnaud. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you tonight. And, and uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll start uh, giving you some, some ideas of what I've been through during my life. But of course, what is interesting is after to have an open discussion, okay? So, um, in fact, you know, to start, maybe what I'll do is to start from the beginning without going into too many details, but try to link it with the environment in which I have been. So I started, I did um, some sort of uh, French uh, uh, engineering school, and at the end of it, I decided that I didn't want to go to the finance. In fact, I, after that, I did a master, which was between HSC and, and uh, Dauphine, and after that, I decided I didn't want to go to finance. I wanted to, be, to do something useful in life and <laughs> contribute to society. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and as a result, I had um, a wonderful and peculiar uh, experience in the sense that uh, I went to a cement company and I had the chance to manage around 450 blue collars. So, um, uh, it was really on the ground. 
it was in the end Belgium. Uh, in fact, uh, I was half Belgian and I and married with my Belgian wife there. Uh, it was a good experience, and I think that this is something that has always been useful in my life, um, because uh, in fact it has given me the capability to interact with people and be able to manage people with some credibility, and, and not only do things by my own, but also be able to consider people to make sure that they work nicely. Because I'm not always good at that, but in fact I learned something. It all ended up because in fact, uh, at the time, the cement industry was working like a cartel. That means that everybody were, all the competitors were working together to define prices, uh, volumes, and things like that. And that was not something sustainable. So I decided to move away from that, to go back to something that was more intellectually challenging. And it was at that time that I did a PhD. And for me, actually, a PhD is super important because I realized very early that when you're going to an international institution, you have a PhD or you don't have a PhD in, 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 in quantitative analysis. So uh, if, uh, if you don't have a PhD, you're not considered in the Anglo-Saxon world as somebody really knowledgeable. Of course, uh, I mean, um, London and, and New York have been accustomed to the French engineers being able to do some things, but still uh, what happens is that most of the time, these people haven't been, haven't had the, uh, the, um, the habit or the opportunity to go into papers, read them, implement them, and things like that. I mean, they're smart people, but they, their knowledge, the, the, the library of knowledge that they have in their mind is rather limited. So to implement smart solution is good, but if you want to be a little bit more innovative, then, uh, uh, then uh, this is something uh, that requires to have spent some time doing a PhD. Now, uh, I went through my PhD, I've been, I've been lucky at the time because in fact, it was the beginning of quantitative credit and um, I was on it by chance. And um, although, I, I mean, I, I had spent several years completely outside of finance, so I thought, well, uh, my friends who have been into finance directly know much more than I do. So what I did is as a result of that, I decided that in quantitative credit where I had some knowledge, better write a book rather than, uh, than um, be uh, the language. So I, in fact, the philosophy I had is if you want to do something, try to be the expert. And if you are the expert in an institution, in a large institution, a lot of people are managers and things like that. They won't, uh, they won't bother you. They will rely on you because they need some sort, they need some sort of expertise. So I wrote, a couple of uh, books, first in French and then in, in English. Um, um, after, right after the PhD, I went to BNP Paribas. At the time, it was uh, the time of uh, the merger between BNP and Paribas, so it was really complex inside the organization. So the sooner I could move away from this uh, big French institution and go to a more entrepreneurial uh, environment shop, I would, uh, you know, I was, I was happy. This is the result for after a year and a half. I moved to London uh, because, in fact, uh, in, uh, the, the, uh, what I found at the time was that the large French institutions were very inward-looking, inward-focused, okay? not very open to the outside world. Very well organized, but uh, in London, I moved to Standard & Poor's. The reason was, for, for it was there, which is that, um, in fact, uh, uh, they needed some knowledge about uh, or expertise about quantitative credit, 
was not anymore just about assessing qualitatively the, 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 the credit worthiness of firms, but trying to understand how to manage a, a credit portfolio and, and, and understand and, and quantify the risk. At the time, actually, it would all look new. This was the, the time of the Merton model, the various type of models, it all looked new. In fact, what happened also, and this is something that, is, uh, that I found interesting, is that a few people exerted some sort of thought leadership, and in the end, all the community used the same model. <laughs> okay, and in fact, there was the, there was the, I don't know, the model from Credit Suisse, the model from, uh, um, from Risk Matrix, the model from etc. There were four or five models, and varieties of them, and approach, because in fact, what I realized is that in these institutions, people were quants, but it took them some time to really understand what the models were, and once they understood it, this, they, they really focused on, on it and didn't move away from it. Now, practically, uh, I was at, at SMP between 20, 2005, uh, 2000, 2000 and 2005, six, and I moved. The, the good thing with the American organization is that we've been able, you were able to move uh, along the ladder. I started uh, really, really, really junior, and after five years, I was heading the quant group globally as an MD, etc. So that was uh, that was quite interesting in terms of, of evolution. What I'd say is I left SNP in 2006 for one reason, which is that my um, my expertise at the time was on uh, dependencies correlation. And it was the time of the copulas and things like that, and it was really interesting. On the, um, and I went at some stage to my boss, and I told him, and I told her, there were, there were two of them, that in my view, uh, the rating of the structured, the, the structured product, the CSOs and things like that, were too volatile uh, because we combine, in fact, the changes, the univariate changes on the ratings with the multivariate uh, evolution, the dependency, the correlation, which was varied. And as a result of that, we needed, uh, and in fact, all these products were very new. We were after the year 2000. And in fact, we have seen, we've seen the recovery from the 2000 crisis. We hadn't seen at the time um, a, a market downturn. And in fact, the problem was that in case of a market downturn, uh, we didn't know how these uh, um, structured products, BCLO, CDOs, etc., would do. The understanding that we had after three, four years of data gathering the data was that the sensitivity to the uh, regime was quite high. So I went to my senior management and told them that in my view it was important to adjust the ratings uh, for this, um, for this uh, uh, ultra sensitivity. The response was, <clears throat> Arno, you are a nice guy, but do you think that we're going to change ratings on all these transactions for this big market uh, and just because of you? Okay? And in addition to that, I had another uh, point which, which was that there were um, firms that were called monolines, reinsurers credit reinsurers, credit enhancers. And in fact, what they, what they offered is you had a, a, um, an investment in credit, in a loan or in, a, in, a, in some debt, 
and you could buy some insurance uh, from these type of firms, and the rating that you would have would move up by one to notches, something like that. So you bought something that was double B, bought an insurance, as a result of that, you would go to a triple B or, or single A. Now, these insurers, these insurers, these credit insurers, they were taking the part of the risk. And so one of the things that I've been asked is to review the, um, the capital um, that uh, was allocated to these uh, firms to make sure that it was in line with the risk they were taking. We worked on all of this and we came back to senior management to say they're undercapitalized, they need to, uh, to raise more capital. And the answer was, why do you uh, come to this conclusion one of the guys at Woody's have found a model that works as is. <laughs> okay, so I left, I left uh, SNP in despair, not thinking that there would be any major crisis, but thinking that I'm completely useless. And the right time. Right. <laughs> Which was and, the year? And, like well, 2006. Sorry. 2006. Uh, end of 2005. Start. Uh, I moved to the beginning of 2006. But. With, I mean, it was just the idea that it was useless, okay? And, and so I went to something people, my colleagues thought that was completely crazy, to private wealth management. When you are doing what was really fashionable at the time uh, with uh, all these, uh, you know, credit derivatives and things like that, going to go into a place like this, but I wanted to manage money. So, and in fact, it was at Barclays, and uh, there was, there had been a change in senior management, and the, the senior management wanted to um, to make money for their clients instead of doing just marketing. And uh, so they, they they asked, I don't know why they, they, they offered me to come. What what I know <laughs> is that uh, they didn't want to have buy side uh, sell side plans because in fact it's completely different with the, uh, the risk neutral uh, approach, et cetera, et cetera. They, want, they, they realized that they had to work with people who were in the empirical world and not on the, in, on the, on the uh, risk neutral world. So, I mean, the chemistry worked well. I went there, arrived, uh, thinking that there was um, a lot of things to do. Just one thing, just one thing, uh, in fact, uh, to say before. At the end of SNP, I wrote a book which was the handbook of structured finance. I went through all the major banks there and uh, asking for the magic formula to price a CLO. Because I understood really well how it worked from a rating perspective, but I didn't understand very well how the pricing was working. And in fact, there were a lot of complex models, etc. But what I realized while writing this book is that the pricing was shit. <laughs> there, was, there was no real model. Uh, it was, there, was, um, there were a couple of Russian guys writing papers which were overly complex, but the reality is that it was unapplicable. So in fact, nobody cared, and, and it was just that. So I went to, to Barclays, and um, um, to build, at the time, the, 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 the people uh, there wanted to build the approach that they had was um, the, um, uh, in fact, about saving the past. You have what is called the CAPM. You know, you had some sort of invariance optimization, whatever, or blacklist the man of all, all these titles. When you said, uh, I'm working with blacklist the man, at the time people said, wow, this is really complex. 
just rubbish. And, <laughs> and, and, and in addition to that, people were trying to spice a little bit things with what was called TA, tactical asset allocation. So balancing equity amounts to create an overlay generating two or three percent of performance on top of the rest. And I worked on that. And, and in fact, uh, the asset allocation, the traditional or static asset allocation, X percent, trying to find a magic uh, formula uh, between how much uh, bonds, how much equities, etc., in the multi-asset portfolio, um, uh, trying to optimize the past and showing the signs how it would have been uh, had we known the right uh, the right asset would have been used. Um, this was just for cheap. And then arrived quickly, 2008. It was really interesting because, in fact, um, within so it's Barclays, uh, the universe was around, I don't know, 80, 90 billion, so it was a large organization. We had an investment committee. What I remember was that in 27, uh, 20, uh, 2007, so 2007, we realized that we were ahead of the, of the liquidity. Now, the difficulty is that when you are in a large organization, taking the risk to really shrink the risk within portfolios is difficult, and we were not equipped. In fact, these type of committees, when they shifted 2% the allocation in something, they said, well, done a big job, but mm -hmm. it didn't matter really at all in the portfolio. So in fact, when uh, ahead of a crisis, you have to be prepared uh, in terms of rules and um, possibility that you have in, in the management of portfolios to gain some leeway. Because when you're close to the crisis, it's no more the time to change the rules. It has to be done before. So we were, 2007, we realized that we were ahead of a crisis. We tried to move a little bit the, um, the, um, the, um, uh, the, um, the allocations, uh, but not much. By the way, aside that, there is something I didn't mention, which is that when I was at, at the S&P, one part of my job was to create uh, some weightings for SME, small and, and medium-sized enterprises. At the time, uh, we collected the data. We built, uh, I built my first machine learning model using uh, logistic regression and SVM. So SVM was quite advanced in the early 2000s. Um, and it was, a, it was called Credit Risk Tracker. It was a competitor to Risk Out, which is still survived. And I, I launched, uh, I launched uh, at Imperial the Master of Risk Management and Financial Engineering. So I co-launched it with uh, William Paradine, a friend of mine. And we, we uh, didn't know whether it would be a good success. Now there are more than 100 students uh, per year, so it's, it's a good success. And what, what do I want to say? So uh, going back to, uh, to Barclays, um, what happened when we came to 2008 was that we thought that we could manage uh, in the portfolios with hedging and uh, on options and things like that. And one of the things that we realized is that it was very interesting. At the beginning, you could hedge, but then the cost of hedging was too high. Okay, So there was no ability to use derivatives anymore to hedge. So that, uh, that, um, that was tough because there was nothing that could be done. Yeah. Just because of the regime at that time, or it was something that you were... No, it was because it was just too expensive. Mm -hmm. So in fact, um, in fact, uh, you could, well, the, the premium that we had to pay were just unjustifiable at the time. 
you don't know how much it's going to collapse, etc. So you're saying, uh, you're saying, okay, no, now we've gone to a certain level. It's no more going to go down. But um, it, 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 we didn't realize all, especially there is one thing to, to understand, which is that people we were working with traditional liquid assets didn't know uh, the more illiquid credit assets. So they didn't realize the, the, um, the extent of the issues. They didn't realize that the banks uh, were struggling to refinance and all the stuff that we've learned since then. So it's like now in a way, you know, if you think of the knowledge that people in more liquid assets have of um, private equity, private debt, fairly limited. So if there is anything happening there, it will come as a surprise. It's, it's you know, level of regulation is lower. The understanding of everybody is lower. Actually, it, start, it's, it is started already to be pushed into retail. Uh, the retail people have got no clue about what uh, they're investing in. And, and it, it is something that could, could, be, could be an issue. So went through this 2008 crisis. <coughs> Actually, what I learned there was one thing, which is never sell, sell this to retail clients. In fact, what, what uh, uh, the portfolios of many clients were stuck with structured products, which were delivering, which were sold as quasi-fixed income. But what they didn't realize is that they collected the premium, uh, but uh, at the expense of a drawdown, and they had to be, uh, they, they had, you know, they were um, selling some insurance, and they were to, uh, they were to, to, to fund uh, the losses of others, and they didn't realize that, and so it was some sort of big, big selling. And I remember. There were a couple of things. Uh, people saying um, uh, these are all uh, what I've set aside for my pension. Um, the volatility uh, cluster in which you uh, we discussed was between I don't know five and eight percent. Were fifteen percent. Uh, this is not what I asked for. Um, my the value of all what I have is is awful. Then there were all these stories about gates which were the more, a bit more spicy uh, asset. But even, even in uh, what we saw in monetary, uh, uh, money, money market funds, uh, some of that because of RMBS were, uh, were tainted. And people thought they had some liquid assets and, and now it's, it's, it was not the case. Actually, it's very surprising that these days today, this year, uh, the regulators have asked all the fund managers to implement gates and said, if you don't want to implement gates in your funds, you have to justify this. And this is something that is quite surprising. It's understandable uh, why they're doing it, but that means that investors don't have in mind the idea that their fund could be gated much more than they think. And, and this is, so in, in passing, this is something that, uh, uh, that could, could, could correspond to a surprise. Now, 2009, uh, so personally during this period, I went through a burnout personally. Okay, so, so that was really difficult because you had all the clients coming to you to say, uh, what is going on with my money? What is going on with my life and things like that? In addition to that, the product had been there for several years. I was not responsible starting in 2006 for all what had been done, but people didn't care. They just wanted making sure that their money was preserved and wanted information. The other thing I learned there is that when it is when you're in the middle of all of this it's super important to communicate with clients don't stay on your side because when when you don't took the natural um, situation is to really hide and say nothing which is the worst that can happen 
because you think that you just manage yourself, but you, the anxiety of people on the other side is growing, and when they come back to you, it's not, it's not easy change. So really making sure that communication is there, making the effort, basically as portfolio managers, you know, we are like Ulysses, okay? That is, uh, when there are some things that people want to do, uh, we, um, we, um, we fix ourselves to the mask and make sure that we don't dive to see the, um, no, it's the, the siren, but I don't know how you say that. And in addition Memory. to that, Memory. 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 Exactly. we are, as portfolio managers, our job is to take the stress of clients. They delegate to us because they don't want to have the stress and they want us to carry the stress. So it is our job to do that and to inform them uh, and reassure them about what we're doing. So that was it. What was in, uh, in, in, in really quickly, what happened after that is what it was very difficult to uh, come back to the market in 2009. Okay, so when you have a model, you built a nice model, the nice pop model that says, uh, go back to the market in March 2009 full speed, that doesn't work. <laughs> it will never work. Okay, nobody will, will go for it. Uh, there is too much to be lost and emotionally people are not prepared. It's actually when you look at what happened, you sort of tiptoe on lower risk like credit, you then go on equity after the summer of 2009. Of course, there may be a few hedge funds doing things a bit earlier, but the majority of people went really carefully after that. Uh, it was, it was shell-shocked. And in addition to that, what I'd say, what, what uh, 2008 told us is what uh, 2022 reminded us, which is that when there is a market shock, uh, the diversification across asset classes doesn't work. So you have your, your, your magnificent optimizer, mean variance optimizer is just rubbish. Okay? And, and we've seen that in 2022, uh, because in fact, when rates uh, are going up and things like that, or this year, when the rates are going up, it's very difficult to find asset classes which are outperforming. Everybody is really, is really uh, under stress. So that was it. Um, we worked, uh, at the time, we kept on working on the, uh, uh, on the, uh, <coughs> on the uh, TAA. I had a nice team of people really uh, in uh, uh, machine learning, people coming from NCMAG and other, other areas trying to build something. At that time, one of the things uh, that I learned, and that is part of my DNA, is I, uh, so it's interesting as, as, as a background. I do not believe in factor models, okay? Why? Because in fact, what we did, for, for two reasons. First reason, I had a fr uh, some friend at uh, GSAM at the time, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and there was uh, this uh, fund which was Global Alpha. And basically, um, uh, the guys there, um, his name is quite a famous Kahab, uh, uh, they um, really uh, were from the School of Chicago, and the School of Chicago is really about the, the explanatory of Gamma French, the explanatory factors and things like that. But it, in 2007, it didn't work anymore. And so uh, in he went bust uh, for that reason because they try to leverage to make it to, you know, to take more risk in order to try to find something. 
What we did on our side is that we took whatever we could take in terms of factors in data stream for public public information and looked at the predictive power of these factors. There were 800 of them and something like that. And we went through uh, um, variations of them to understand what was the predictive power of these factors. And what we realized is that the stability of the predictive power of, of the factors, of the features, was not there. There were only 5% of uh, the feature which had some sort of stable predictive power. So we went, we implemented at the time some uh, HMM and things like that to try to understand regimes, etc. And But it was very difficult. And in fact, I remember always one explanatory factor for the dynamics of the S&P 500 was the number of cars sold in South Korea. <laughs> so not something that is super intuitive. So I'm not saying that uh, everybody shares my view, but based on what I've seen, I'm a bit skeptical of um, a set of models, uh, a set of features, an outcome, and trying to find the best model. Why? Because in fact, it's something, this, when you look at the psychology of the market, what happens is that the market is an aggregate of investors, which is not simple. Sometimes some investors are at play, sometimes other investors are at play. And so that means that the risk aversion of this group is not stable over time. And the way these people understand um, um, the, the, the market and risk changes. So for example, central bank is providing liquidity. Is that good or is that bad? Sometimes can be good, sometimes can be bad. So in fact, that shows that this factor is not going to provide some sort of stable uh, signal. So went through that. Uh, in fact, uh, after that, my boss at the time asked me to move to, uh, uh, to move within uh, to Deutsche Bank. When I was at, at uh, uh, when I went to Deutsche Bank, I thought, I, I, I don't know whether some of you are Deutsche Bank, but uh, <laughs> at the time I thought, well, I'm going to go with the crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did, I, I, I had the view, uh, it was in 2010, that um, machine learning was going to be a game changer. So one of the things I did was to work on a robot to trade on Betfair to really uh, understand uh, what was going on there. In fact, I launched on my own personal money a competition on Kaggle uh, to uh, really understand how people would, would uh, work. Working with horses was uh, not uh, something that was uh, preventive because it was not on financial market I could do. In fact, I learned a lot through this experience. First of all, uh, the idea that the price is a probability of our performance. So when you think of a price on an asset, of equities or something like that, you say you know, the price of, of Nestle is this. No, the price of Nestle, in fact, has got some hidden information, which is that it expresses the preferences of investors of, um, on, on, on Nestle over Parmalat. And so trying to understand what is, are the hidden probabilities that are expressed through the price. And the second thing I learned is that models are as good as they are uh, for a certain period of time. And what we realized is that the initial models that we built were doing well at the beginning and their, uh, their value was fading over time. Uh, because in fact, there were other people working on smart models with perhaps better information than we had. And as a result of that, it was, it was, it was tough to outperform. So in fact, this is something that you don't have, I, I realized it there, you don't have that when you're working on something. For one reason, which is that Apart if you're working in some sort of esoteric hedge fund, everybody uses the same type of, of model. And in fact, you are in competition 
with people who, uh, if you want to make money, who are smart, who are trying to have a view. So in fact, in order to make money, one has to have some sort of lateral thinking that is not aligned with uh, the uh, other, other people. And it has to be quite unique. So, and, and I'd say one of the things that I realized is that actually machine learning was something that enables us right now to express lateral thinking. Not everybody has got the same models anymore. CAPM is dead. Uh, in fact, all the pricing of options, etc., doesn't interest many people anymore. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to be, a, a, I'm going a bit quickly there. And people are trying to extract value and trying to be smart uh, in a different manner. So I, I think that that has been something interesting. Now, I had at Deutsche Bank, I had, uh, um, I can't remember how many, 250 portfolio managers working with me. There was a lot of management there, it was interesting. It was 125 billion. But I wanted to be more on the um, innovation side than being a manager. So in fact, this is where I left. And I went back to Paris. I didn't want my kids to be pure English people. So I went back <laughs> to Paris too. And, and, uh, and decided to work into the space. This has been a tough experience uh, for different reasons. Um, when you are in a, in a large organization, you are a bank employee, exactly. whatever the level. So I thought, well, I'm going to be, when I'm going to be a director, I'll have some sort of responsibility. I'll have some more autonomy. When I'm going to be an MD, I'm going to have some more autonomy. In the end, I was managing 30 MDs and no autonomy. <laughs> so uh, the, now, when you go into a small organization, you're you, yourself, and uh, your cat, and, uh, <laughs> and things are going more slowly. And in addition to that, what I realized is that uh, the finance industry was very traditional. People didn't want to take any risk. They wanted they want to have some magic return without uh, doing things that are fully explainable like the others are doing, and that doesn't work. And I think also I'd say something which is politically non correct here. Uh, it what has happened, especially there has been some sort of divergence between the U.S. and Europe, in the sense that Europe went full speed into a ESG that really. Um, occupied a lot of the bandwidth of senior management and they didn't realize what was going on and what was happening, i.e. all the evolution towards more sophistication. While the US, the US was much less on the ESG, I mean, I'm not to say that it's good or bad, and as a result, they were much more prepared uh, for, uh, for all what was related to AI. Not all of them, because in fact, you know, a lot of things related to, uh, uh, to retail remains very traditional. But still, there are there is a lot of smart money there, more than there is a, there is a, uh, where we are. The other point too, I'd like to say, is that when you build something new, it requires an awful lot of time um, for you to be comfortable and people who put money uh, to be comfortable on what you do, making sure uh, that it works. Because you have when you do a back test or something like that, it's all done at once. Uh, when you go through the journey, the investment journey with the ups and downs, it is something that is difficult to win. And it's very difficult to be hands off and to say, I'm not going to tweak my model because in fact, uh, I'm not happy with the results uh, that are there. So you have got this challenge between um, upgrading your game, uh, working on new technologies and, um, and at the same time, uh, making sure that you are not uh, trying to gain emotional comfort by tweaking your model when you're not happy with it. 
So this is not very easy. I think that we have got where, where I am now. We've got a good balance between young people uh, and more senior people trying to work together, uh, do their PhD, because in fact, if you, if you don't do your PhD, and, and what I've been telling to people is that they know almost nothing. It's not, a, uh, it's not, a, a, it's not completely true, but they learn a lot. Um, in fact, and they realize how difficult it is to build something that is quite genuinely new. And, um, and, but now I think that this year is an interesting year with the, <coughs> the, uh, um, uh, the um, evidence of chat GPT and things like that, generative AI, with people realizing that it's going to change their lives. And with, you can see senior management um, uh, functions really realizing uh, that this is something that has to happen, not know exactly how to do it. And by the way, I'd like to say something which is uh, an observation, uh, which is that uh, with all the ESG things that have happened, the cost of production in asset management has increased. has increased by about 15%. Now, what happens is that up to now, the market has been going up uh, to some extent, so the market effect is fairly positive apart from Christmas, but look, if we start to have the market that goes down, we'll have the cost up and with inflation and things like that on top of it, and we'll have the revenues going down. So there is going to be, it's going to be a tough time where cost cutting will take place, but also re-engineering of the processes will have to, to happen to make sure that the processes and all the effort is less, is, is, is um, more cost effective than, than it could be in the past. So this is an opportunity, but it's not a given because it's a traditional industry. So I've said a lot. such a generously I mean uh, sharing your experience we had I mean we had so much insights I can't I wanted I mean to list them and just I mean to share them <laughs> now I lost some of them but uh, thank you so much uh, Arnaud I suppose that uh, we I bet we have many questions uh, to, to ask I have I started I mean, with two already I'm going to start it with a little bit journalistic <coughs> anecdotal where were you on uh, September 16th 2008 uh, at the bankruptcy of uh, I, was a, I was at Standard and Poor's, and some colleagues uh, in, in New York, um, they, were, they were not far away from, uh, from the. Um, from Lehman the, Tower? Yeah. Uh, um, um, uh, sorry, no, I was, I was thinking uh, the 9 11. I can't remember. I mean, I can't remember. It, I don't see 2008 as an event. Okay. I see 2008 as some sort of a continuum where it went down, down, down. I remember one thing, which is uh, the um, the head of the retail bank at Barclays saying uh, things have now gone down sufficiently. I'm investing that much of my personal money in Barclays share uh, because I believe that this is the end of it. And, <laughs> so it was some sort of continuous event, and we have a feeling that it won't, uh, it, it, it would never end. Actually, this is something that is very different from uh, from um, from uh, um, the COVID crisis, in the sense that during the COVID crisis, people said, "Great, there is a great opportunity to reinvest because it's going to to bounce back very quickly." Uh, at that time, there was no idea that it was going to bounce back. 
and, 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 and people had, had lost confidence and trust in the rebound of the market. Exactly. It lasted, I mean, at least two years, I mean, to, to yeah. go in 2010. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And after, I mean, all this that happened. Uh, another question is that uh, just a one uh, kind of small story. What you said about uh, the, the models and when they are not really become completely use, useless in some kind of uh, environment like this. I recall uh, it is just, I mean, as a matter of for a kind of cautionary story for us. Uh, you know, Nicole Elcardi in 2008, she was accused by many portfolio managers that her models were not working. And she had to come, if you recall, Alan, she had to come I mean, to in, in, the, in the news to, you know, a quant, I mean, the really the, the best quant of France that even worked, and to justify herself why her models were not working. And she explained said that I, I recall, I mean, I just I paraphrase. She said that I made this model. I mean that you run with it with 100 kilometers per hour, and you were running with uh, with 500 kilometers per hour. Of course, it's not going to work. And you cannot ask us quants and just make us, I mean, responsible for the crisis. So just, I mean, beware. I mean, if there is a crisis, somehow they can come. I mean, behind everybody. So you just be, I mean, uh, ready for that. Uh, if you are, want I mean, to, to add something on that, because that was just uh, what you said about, I mean, the I, I, I think that. Uh, models uh, we need to keep a skeptical eye and secondly a model can never be a standard mm -hmm. so if the model becomes the standard what is it the reality is is the reality what is what people are trying to do is to approach it and in fact at the end of it people stopped of 2008 people stopped with the compact exotic products they realized that under abnormal conditions uh, in fact the models don't work they work most of the time when things are benign, but when it is not benign, it doesn't work anymore. So people said, okay, there is too much complexity. There is always these uh, topics about explainability and things like that, which is a good idea, provided that it doesn't constrain us too much in having to prototype approaches. Mm -hmm. Yes? <coughs> yeah, the question. I'll try to be from experience, but sharing with us uh, experience from this. So I'll kind of get back to the start of your, uh, of your speech about the PhD. You mentioned at the last, it was important to do a PhD, but if you look in 2000, it's always important to have PhD to go to hedge funds. But right now, there's not much that constraint. So what do you think about that? Why PhD is always important to, to have in hand? I think that it's, it's true uh, that uh, things are evolving quickly. And um, <clears throat> that um, uh, uh, that in a way, what happens three years after you've done something may not be uh, uh, as relevant. But what I'd say is that, listen, with all the packages that exist, in, in, in fact, if people think that being users of packages make them great quants, they're wrong. Because in the end, it's going to be a guy with, uh, with uh, you know, two, uh, two years of, uh, uh, of uh, university uh, being able to use the package. And in fact, we really need, <coughs> in, in, when you're doing a PhD, going in front of your peers, of peers of senior people, trying to show them that you have understood something that is quite unique and, and, uh, and um, which is not something that they is trivial or, or expected. So I'd say, uh, and in addition to that, what you do 
is you open up uh, to a lot of papers and things like that. So, in fact, one of the things I realized at my time was this, that especially when, I, uh, when we were working on correlations, the people who had just gone out of university, uh, they, uh, traditional uh, master and things like that, of course they could work with uh, uh, a traditional correlation, even Pearson, even uh, the type of thing. But when it, it was about copulas and things like that, they didn't spend any time on this. So they had in their mind the standard library on the, the topics. They, it was very difficult for them to expand beyond that. And what this time uh, does is that it, it gives you the opportunity to go laterally, to really visit what people have been doing in other fields perhaps than finance, and uh, apply this to, uh, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to solve a problem. You know, for example, today, <coughs> if uh, uh, we're trying, I mean, we, we, we have a literature on uh, machine learning that is not very much um, um, focused on finance. So if we are able to look at things related to audio signals, to things like that, well, I mean, a lot of people are on NLP, but other things like that, and try to see what can be leveraged and how, what type, what kind of ideas can be taken away from this to build new, new kinds of models and things like that. This is something uh, that is interesting. I'd add another thing, and I'm, after that I shut up. When you look at the evolution in machine learning of what has been taking place, actually, um, um, if I look at the beginning of my lecture, you start with the models, with the neural nets and things like that. When you move along the way, you have a lot of work that is being done on preprocessing of the data, okay? The LSTM, whatever you want, and things like uh, the attention models, etc., etc. In fact, what it means <coughs> is that a model is never something where you dump data and you try to find uh, good results. The work on the data in order to purify it, to make sure that it is good quality and things like that is super important. So for instance, if you have some data, but you have never used wavelets and things like that, uh, you, the quality of your data is going to be very noisy. This is the type of thing, uh, all the breadth of knowledge is the type of thing that you will have the opportunity to learn um, <coughs> during your PhD while playing with this. And uh, in fact, when you are, uh, you've just finished uh, the, um, uh, your course at university, what happens? I know, I know it because I, I, you know, lecture, final lecture, okay, let's go to the transformer and uh, everybody, uh, uh, nobody understands exactly what it is because it's not going to be uh, on the exam because it's the last lecture. And you're really good at logistic regressions, really good at things intermediary, but the breadth of knowledge you have is fairly limited. But smart people, but, but in fact you haven't got, and you're competing with people who have got that type of breath. Yeah, thank you. That's my question. Mm -hmm. Before I read the next question I have, I'm going to ask you another question that nobody, nobody has ever, ever asked you. What is your take on crypto? Uh, I've never <laughs> answered that type of question. Um, in fact, in fact, I didn't, uh, maybe I'm going to say something that is politically not correct. But you remember that what I say, what I said um, at the beginning, and, and that asks a lot of questions, but 
What I said at the beginning is I didn't want to go into finance because I wanted to do something which was expensive, okay? Um, maybe in a naive manner, uh, but I understand how cryptos can be useful to society, especially when there is uh, uh, governments that are trying to control everything. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand how arbitrage on cryptos was something that was very useful to society, okay? So in fact, it's not that I'm saying um, it's bad or wrong, but it, it's not something to do. I have one about capital allocation. So you mentioned Black Lieberman is uh, garbage, and you also mentioned that in times of crisis, uh, mean variance is useless. So what is so, so <laughs> the opposite of that? So, so in fact, in fact, the reason why I said that is because I didn't find I didn't find anybody able to explain to me uh, uh, how to estimate uh, the covariance matrix. Uh, on what type of data and things like that. And what I realized is that, in fact, I wrote a book on this, it, it is that uh, there are regimes in the equity market, mm -hmm. and when you're trying to average 80% um, uh, of growth period with 20% of uh, uh, down periods to find the an average uh, correlation matrix or covariance matrix, it doesn't work very much. And depending on the, the book, you're never going to get a proportion, right? So, it's, it's, so in fact, uh, there is one thing here which is that um, when people are, uh, have been working on this, it was under the assumption, the IID assumption. That is, we can work on distributions, it is sufficient. We don't, we don't need to have a look at the, at the time dimensions of the time series. And in fact, what we've learned since then, and it's the reason why NLP is interesting in this field and things like that, is that time series are sequential. So not using, using, not using sequential models, is, 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 is something that is not good. I mean, for instance, random forest uh, uh, using that is, is interesting, but it doesn't, you've got no guarantee uh, that the, uh, the universe on which you're going, you're working is going to be relevant because the time dimension, the sequentiality is not taken into, into account. Taking that uh, sequentiality into account is something that really matters. Even in the asset allocation? In the, in the asset allocation. Now, the difficulty is that people would like to have yearly uh, as stable asset allocation but you know crisis are not are not doesn't work do, do not work on a year by year basis Thanks. yes uh, for you what is the reason for the low chain adhesion to innovation um <laughs> what what i'd say is this it is that uh, the um, a lot of the uh, of the of the people are fixed income investors and, and not and not uh, and not equity investors. Um, in, in fact, um, uh, if you look at institutional uh, institutionals like pension funds, uh, pension funds that don't exist very much in, in France, but um, um, insurance companies and things like that, they will invest in real estate. They will invest in um, in, um, um, in debt, uh, but they won't. They will. They will tiptoe into equities, and that's it. So, uh, in fact, uh, as a result of that, they're really risk averse. And when you're dealing with risk, uh, and they've been forced out of it because of of the negative rates, and they've had to go. In fact, it is interesting because they've not embraced equity risk. They've went. They've gone into private equity or private debt to really hide the volatility 
because the, uh, the you know the prices are not daily. As a result of that, they had the impression they were under the impression that it was not too volatile and and, and, and it was a, a, a acceptable. But the the appetite for risk is not very high in Europe. And um, in addition to that, there is another thing that we have noticed is that equity markets are just a mess. I mean, I take I take an example. The ticker SAN, S-A-N, what does it stand for? It stands for Sanofi and Santander. Okay? So you have, you have to have the dot uh, something to show the place where it's listed. So that means that, um, in fact, it is, it is not completely a unitary market. And that makes it, uh, that makes it, it is the, um, the um, and basically what has happened also was this. It is that until five, seven years ago, people were making money going, playing small minus big, small cap, uh, European small cap versus large cap. So they could remain very local, just playing on small caps, um, and the large shops wouldn't go very much uh, uh, large cap, uh, small cap, and so it was something that was where the smaller shops, the smaller asset managers were focusing, and that they were making make their living like this. Now, when it came to with tech that people 10 years ago had to invest into, uh, into the US, nobody wanted to invest into the US. And right now, today, if you, if you want to say, we invest into the US, people will say, no, no, we invest globally, 80% US, 20% Europe, <laughs> but we don't invest in the US directly. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing is that we are uh, many uh, many of our friends here. They have, I mean, the opportunity really to go further. I mean, in terms of research, doing other masters, and doing, I mean, a PhD. What are, I mean, for you, the promising fields in the field of AI in real in general? Let's not talk about really specifically about the related field. I, I think that uh, it's it's a uh, um, it is actually they are. People have got to know who they are. Uh, if you are a user, don't go for a PhD. If you have got some unique intuition, then you have plenty of tools to express this intuition. Let me give you an example, okay? One of the questions I ask myself is this. Why do people who don't work seem to be better than people who work? So why? on large cap, does passive seem to be doing better than active managers? Uh, maybe because the fees are different, but yes, but it, it is something. Uh, and in fact, here is my understanding. It, I, I'm not saying that it is right, but it's this. When I look at the price of an asset, the price of an asset combines future cash flows with a discount factor. Future cash flows correspond to fundamental analysis, trying to understand really the future of the firm. And basically the way I see the market is like a big mall where you've got plenty of shops, each of the shop is a firm, and the firm, and the firm is showcasing its future cash flows. And what happens is that people in the market walk in this mall and say, I trust Nestle more than Parmalat. Therefore, I'm going to discount Nestle more favorably than Parmalat. Now, if you're asking people, what is the discount factor? People are going to tell you uh, the cost of capital, something like that. No, the discount factor really reflects the relative risk aversion 
of investors towards the stocks. And actually, the derivative of the discount factor is the outright misproduction. So in fact, when you look at the literature, this is the literature on pricing journal and things like that, uh, what have we got to say on the dynamics of the discount factor? So this is a research angle that is quite new. How are we going to express this? With what type of tools, uh, et cetera, et cetera? What type of data? This is something that is interesting. So this is the, an example of the fact that, first of all, you have to have some intuitions and work on that and come with something uh, which is new. And then we'll, you'll use the tools as a way to express uh, something that is new and come with some conclusions, being able to really uh, follow the data to, uh, to the signals you're interested in. Really interesting. I mean, there's a field I mean, uh, really uh, developing. So uh, maybe, I mean, we take, I mean, the last, we even passed, I mean, the, the limit of the time, but it was really so much, I mean, to learn. Please go. All right, first, uh, thank you very much for the talk. Thank you very much for uh, all the insights about career, about personal and professional life as well. That was very interesting, I think, for me. And uh, I have some questions, I'll be quick on that. Uh, first, you were talking about the fact that you don't believe in a lot of things, so you never don't believe in models uh, in general, uh, in, uh, in uh, asset diversification, in case you have a chart on the market. And uh, you also believe that uh, you, we have to bet on uh, machine learning all the time, uh, that it was lateral thinking because nobody was doing it in investment bank, and it's even the case now, as uh, now for pricing. I mean, there's no, like, not a lot of uh, machine learning there. Do you think machine learning still? Do a lot of thinking today, or as more and more people are betting on that and going in this direction, you need to find a new one. Listen, uh, I, I think so. When I said I don't believe in this, that looks rather negative. What what I say is that I've been through various crises that showed me that um, you can't you can't trust fully uh, things when things are, are when the environment is getting more shaky. Okay, this is what I learned. And um, it's not because it is new uh, that is basically what happens is that the community of investors will factor in the innovation and will swallow it and will go over it. So this is the difficulty. What I say is that the toolkit corresponding to machine learning is very diverse. So at the end of, of uh, uh, my, my course at university at Imperial, generally students come to, uh, to, to me and say, uh, well, what we want to do is we want to apply this and that model to predict uh, the return of this and that type of stuff. Very naive, uh, because in fact, uh, th this is something that you know will not work uh, because it, it's too standard. You have to go through this step, and this is where I find this notion of the PhD being interesting, is that you have to find an angle people have not thought of. And in fact, machine learning it gives you a wider toolkit to be able to express your intuitions, okay? But if you're coming completely mainstream, don't expect too much. Very quickly, so just, I'm completely joining you on the idea to do PhD because I was working as a part of BNP and I would like to go for the PhD from Salina. Okay. And um, I just have this um, thinking in my mind about if you are the specialist within your team and within your career, as you mentioned, I think part of the report that the senior management wasn't really uh, listening to you, and uh, even uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, when you were leading uh, MDs, you were also not 
free to do whatever you want or to impact your decisions. So, do you think maybe being this isolated in this environment uh, was for you also a way uh, not to be able to take those decisions freely? Maybe because uh, people were a bit skeptical about uh, all this knowledge that you are have in mind, all this intuition you can have, or wh what did your I think that it depends uh, where where you are. Um, when you are, in fact, in traditional banks or traditional asset managers, they are not there to, I mean, in fact, if you look at it, you have a, a balance between marketing and performance. Okay, depending on the shops you're in, it's more focused on marketing, less on performance, or more focused on performance and less on marketing. Now, if you go for performance, you go to certain hedge funds, but then uh, you know your your lifetime in the hedge fund is not going to may not be very very long, okay? Because it's in and out. <coughs> if you go to retail <coughs> money manager, uh, um, basically we've seen that with ESG thematics and things like that, marketing is more important. I'm not saying that ESG is just marketing, but the appeal that uh, resonated with people was more related to understandable capital. So. It has to be, you have to find where to go uh, depending on your skill. If you think that you're a genius, go to a hedge fund or build your hedge fund. If you think you're reasonably good, try to find an in-between. If you think that you just want to show people that you're credible but apply some standard recipes, go to a retail shop. It depends on you. Thank you. Thank you for the very last question. <laughs> just, I mean, if you can answer it with yes and no. Do you believe in efficient market? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, okay, we have the three hours now. I don't believe in efficient market. Okay, I think there, there, are, there is a degree of efficiency, but there is no, no full efficiency. Perfect. That's a perfect okay. Jamie answer, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, this is, I mean, uh, I think really, we started really in a very well, I mean, they are uh, guests, I mean, for the future. So thank you so much. The thing is that I just, I wanted to remind, I mean, two things.